questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Welcome. If you're new here, I'm glad you're here and happy new year. I know we're a couple weeks into it, but I just wanted to wish you all a very happy new year. I hope you got a chance over the holidays to at least take some time to relax, recharge. And while I don't, you go, if you've been following me for you know other years, you know that I do not like new year's resolutions. I think they focus a lot. Well, they focus too much on our outward appearance. Like, oh, I need to lose weight or, oh, there's huge lofty goals that we usually, you know, give up come March 1st or even before that for a lot of people. But I do subscribe to or support thinking of the new year as a fresh start and trying to come up with some things that we would like to do differently. Now, these are small shifts, things you can do within the first week. And one of the things that I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to invest more in myself. And that is that actually means a lot of things. And I'm just telling you this in case it helps spark any ideas for you or so that you kind of get an idea of by what I mean when I say I don't like resolutions, but I like, you know, having some new goals and new shifts of, you know, focus or perception and things like that. So I want to invest more in myself, which means that I need to prioritize my self-care over work sometimes, and I'm not that good at doing it. And so in 2022, I hope to go out. Sean and I've already made a, a, you know, had a conversation and made a commitment to each other that at least once a month, we're going to go somewhere. Like we're in Texas and we have so much yet to explore. So we'll be booking some little trips and little getaways, even if it's just a night away or even just a day trip. And so at least once a month, we're going to do that. We're going to start booking the first three of this year. So that's something that we're going to do. And then I really, really, really have been wanting to dive into this book, The Artist's Way. If you haven't heard of it, The Artist's Way is like a, it's just a way to kind of cultivate more creativity in your life. I think it can benefit everybody. I've had tons of friends do it. I've read portions of it and I've mentioned things from it here because I followed along as one of my girlfriends did it um, on her Instagram. And so I feel like part of me kind of did it, but I've really been wanting to to take the time to do that. So I'm going to, you know, try to put aside some time each week to work on that. And then I would like to practice my French or even Spanish. I mean, both of those languages are super helpful. But if any of you don't know, my husband is from Quebec and Montreal. And a lot of people in Montreal speak French and a lot of my family now speaks French. And so I would really like to be able to do that. And I have practiced in the past and done some, but I always fall off. Again, it's like those New Year's resolutions. It's like, so let's do it every day for 30 and no one can keep up with that. And so my goal is just to prioritize some of these things. And if I do at least one of them, I will feel very, very good about myself. And so those are just a few of the things that I don't think of it so much as like, I have to do this and this has to be done each and every day, or I'm going to, you know, work out more in all of 2022. I'm like, in 2022, these are the things that I would like to prioritize more myself. (laughs) And that might even mean that if I can't get out of town or go somewhere that maybe Sean and I take a day off you know, and I just try to make it more achievable, more small behavioral change, something that I can accomplish in one day versus feeling like I have to do it every day for the next 365 days, because that just is never attainable and always overwhelming. 
Okay, enough about that. Let's jump into your questions because today we have a lot. We have 10 questions. And the first question says, hey, Katie, how can I start to feel more comfortable sharing things with my therapist? I get a ton of questions about this, about the difficulty opening up and the difficulty talking to our therapists and being honest. So let's just, there's more to this. Let's finish this question. Says, I've been in therapy for a few months now and I still feel like I'm holding back. Very normal. I do trust her and want to be able to open up, but I can't seem to get over the vulnerability of it all. So I can, so I can actually do it. I find myself closing up every session, downplaying everything and saying that I'm fine when I'm not and that things are going well when they're actually not. Now there are some comments on this, but I want to dive into this first because it's so incredibly common. And the truth about it is everybody does it and let your therapist know it's happening. Now we don't have to open up and be vulnerable. And that's the only way around this. I think a lot of the therapeutic process is just telling our therapist where we're at. That doesn't mean having all the, uh, all the information or knowing what exactly we're feeling or thinking, or even being motivated for change yet, but just telling our therapist what our thought process is now, just like you told me, right? I'm not comfortable opening up and I don't know why I'm still holding back and I trust you but I find myself closing up and downplaying things. Like, could we tell them that? Because as a therapist, we run into roadblocks or what you could call defense mechanisms all the time. And I'm sure your therapist is noticing this, but because you've only been going for a couple of months or a few months, you said, they might not be 100% sure. I've had situations like this in my practice where I'll have a patient who I just think is struggling to feel comfortable and, and opening up and I'll think, oh, I don't, I don't know how big of a deal this thing is because they keep downplaying it, but I don't, you know, I'm still feeling them out and I can assume that, hey, I think they're holding back, but until they tell me or until I spend more time with them, I'm not going to know for sure. And I would love it if all of my patients would tell me, hey, I'm doing this and I don't know why, because we don't have to have an answer. We don't have to know what we want to do about it or anything like that. We're just telling our therapist, hey, I'm doing this thing and I I don't know why. And that is really the first step towards feeling better, getting better and opening up. It's just your process. And that's the cool thing about therapies. We don't have to say the things that we might not be ready to say, but we can tell them, hey, there are things I haven't said. I'm just not quite there yet. And that's also helpful. All that information is helpful. Does that make sense? It's like, we don't have to tell them anything except for what we're experiencing, you know? And then your therapist, what's going to help you out and what's going to help you get more comfortable is you're going to be validated by your therapist and supported. And they're going to ask questions to try to circumvent your defense mechanisms. And what I mean by that is instead of asking something directly, maybe we'll go a roundabout way. Like a lot of my patients will shut down if I mention family stuff. So if I say like, so how's your relationship with your mom? A lot of my patients will be like, oh, it's fine. And then as we spent time together, I've learned, oh, mom was super emotionally neglectful or abusive, or she's a narcissist or something. And we don't even talk to her anymore, or it's really hard to talk. You know, I'll learn so much more. But when I first initially ask, we're like, oh, it's fine. It's good. You know, I talk to her so, you know, every so often we try to brush it off and downplay. And so being able to be honest about the fact that it's hard to talk about some topics. If you're able to address those topics and call them out, that's wonderful. 
but it's okay if you're not. And so as a therapist, instead of asking directly to go back, I realize I didn't really finish up that thought. Instead of asking directly, oh, how's your relationship with your mom? I would ask something more along the lines of like, walk me through what, what a Christmas day is or Christmas Eve is like for you. If, if you celebrate that, you know, it could be Hanukkah, it could be, you know, what's a family dinner like? Do you ever get together with them? Uh, you know, walk me through what each role people have. And then I'd probably talk a little bit about like, you know, I've had patients who play this and like try to normalize like family dynamics that aren't healthy because most of us have family dynamics that aren't healthy and let you tell me what it's like. And through that, I'll be able to glean more information than me asking directly, how's your relationship with your mom or your dad or whatever. Um, Or I might even say, you know, do you, do you live at home or away? And if you live away, then I'll be like, well, when you go home, do you find yourself shifting into any old behaviors? That's very common and see what you mentioned that way. There's a lot of different ways that we can get into this. And what I, the way, the analogy that I've always offered when it comes to this is instead of just trying to walk in the front door, I'm going to try to sneak in the back window because the front door is often barricaded, has a ton of defense mechanisms and alarms attached to it. And so if we try to come in that way, right, if I ask directly, how's your relationship with your mother? You're like, oh my God, oh my God, this is too much. It's too much. Shut it down. Shut it down. I don't like this. It makes me feel really nervous, you know, and we just like all the defense mechanisms shoot out. But if I walk around, you know, the back of the house and try another way in, I can sometimes sometimes get in that way easier. Does that make sense? And so really my answer to this question is give yourself time and please, as much as you can, be open with your therapist about this process, not the other things coming up for you, but more about the fact that it's hard for you to open up. Let your therapist know that. Now, we had a comment on this said, why is therapy so messy and hard? Is therapy really for everyone? And why does it take so long to open up without fear? Now, therapy is messy and hard. And the reason that it is those things is because life's complicated. And a lot of the unhealthy or unhelpful behaviors that we have weren't created overnight. They've taken years for us to develop and refine and get to a place where we feel like it's like normal for us to interact with others that way or to do that certain thing or have that, you know, that thought process in our brain. We've done it for so long that it just feels normal. And so to undo that is going to feel very uncomfortable, hence the difficulty and the messiness, because we don't know Uh, this is why I call it like a family dance, but you could just call it like your own dance. Like I'm always doing the Katie dance, right? And if someone comes into my life, like my therapist and is like, hey, Katie, that dance is like kind of outdated and you realize how much it's hurting you, right? And I'm like, what? Poof, all of a sudden I see how unhealthy it's been. And then my therapist is gonna try to teach me a new dance. When we try to learn a new dance, we step on our own toes. We step on the toes of other people. We get out of sync. We don't know what we're doing. We're not sure what to do with our hands. These steps are different, right? And it's really, really hard. And honestly, we can even be sore from doing this new dance, right? It's like the growing pains of it. We're like, ooh, I didn't know that muscle existed. So we're like, ooh, I didn't know you could interact with people that way. Mm, that That's uncomfortable, uh, right? There's a lot that can come up when we try to change our behavior because we've been doing it the way that we've been doing it for a really long time. And that's what causes the messiness because we don't know how to do it this way and also why things are so difficult. But as we continue moving forward and continue practicing that new dance, it gets easier and easier until that more healthy dance is our kind of go-to knee-jerk reaction. But it just takes time. And they asked, is therapy really for everyone? Yes, 
But I do want to throw in this very important caveat that it only works if we like our therapist and feel like they get us. And what I mean by that is the therapeutic relationship is incredibly important. We need to feel like they understand where we're at and what we're going through. And we, we feel like they can support us along the way. We should never feel minimized or invalidated or put down for anything in therapy. It should be a place for supportive growth-filled conversation. Yes, we can fuck up and not do what our therapist told us to do, and then feel have some shame and embarrassment come up for us with that. But the therapist's response, most likely, or at least it should be, something to the effect of, "It's okay. We all make mistakes. Let's let's learn from this. Instead of falling into a shame spiral, nothing's wrong with you. Let's figure out where it went wrong and why it was so hard for you. Right? We're, we're going to validate. We're going to empathize. And we're going to try to re like re- redo. And almost a lot of times it's like reframing where it's like, instead of seeing this as a failure, let's see this as a growth opportunity. And what can we take from that to help us move forward better next time so that I'm not giving you homework that's triggering or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And so as long as that you have a therapist that you, you enjoy, that you, I know it's hard work, but you still at least feel like they get you, they're on your side and they, you know, support and validate your experience therapy is really for everyone. And then there was a final question that said, how long does it take or why does it take so long to open up without fear? If we've been traumatized in our life or had some shitty people in our lives, parents, other family members, maybe bullies at school or a teacher or any anybody who's done us harm, we're not going to trust people easily. In fact, we're probably going to have some PTSD symptoms like hypervigilance and avoidance of things that remind us of that past trauma, right? So we're going to have these kinds of defense mechanisms and walls up as a way to prevent a future trauma. And therefore, going into therapy and being told that we're supposed to talk about all those things that we don't say to anybody, it's going to be hard and it's going to take time. And we're going to have to slowly prove to our brain that our therapist is not out to get us, that telling them these things is not going to re-traumatize us, and that it's going to be okay. But that takes time. And that's why it's hard um, and why it can feel like it's taking forever. But I just encourage you to challenge that unfounded fear and push past it a little bit once you feel like you have a good therapist, because then you'll be able to like expand your world and expand your trust circle, if you want to call it that, and lower your hypervigilance because we're going to prove over and over that that person isn't a threat and that we're okay and that talking about this is only going to make it better. But we have to prove it to ourselves because so far all we've proven is that things are bad, people can harm us, and we can't trust anyone. And so we're going to have to push back a little bit slowly but surely. Okay. And then there was another comment on this that said, I really struggle with reaching out even to my support team. I cannot bring myself to trust them because I know that they'll leave sooner or later. Ooh, I'm getting a little BPD attachment stuff going on in here. When I try to reach out or say how bad it is, I keep deleting the message and then I spiral. Do you have any tips on how to stop this? Now, again, talk to them about it. I feel like we're kind of having some kind of attachment slash maybe borderline personality disorder uh, stuff coming up that that thought that because they're going to leave sooner or later means I can't trust them. I encourage you to to challenge that thought process, okay? Because what that means is, is that if relationships are going to end, they were never worth having in the first place. Is that true? 
Now, any of you with BPD or attachment issues out there like, well, hell yeah, I can't survive that. Well, let's dig into that. Why is it that you feel like you can't survive that? What what damage would it do if you opened up to your treatment team and told them what was really going on? And then like a year down the line, you're doing well and you don't need them anymore. And so they don't make any more appointments and you know, you decide you wouldn't make appointments either because you're doing okay. Is that really as traumatizing as we think it's going to be? We have to challenge those thoughts. That uh, abandonment, that fear of abandonment that's been like stimulated through having support team. And honestly, like the sometimes for my patients with borderline personality disorder or attachment issues or both, when we need somebody, that can be super triggering. And I think that might have been what's happened in this case for this person. That's my hypothesis. And so really what I would encourage you to do is almost like what I said to the first question is like, let them know that this is your struggle. Doesn't mean we have to open up and let them know that we need help all the time and not delete those messages. And like, Ooh, it means we need to tell them this is happening and tell them that it's hard because you worry about them leaving. And even the thought or the knowledge that they won't be around forever is making it difficult for you to, to trust them and to open up. Let them work with you. But what your work's going to be is you're going to have to make yourself available emotionally to question your automatic beliefs. Those automatic beliefs are things that that say to you, well, if they're going to leave now, it's not worth me ever working with them. Or if they leave, I can't survive that. If I trust them and then they leave, I, I don't think I can make it, right? Whatever these thoughts you're having, we're going to have to challenge those because just think about it. The thought or the belief that if they leave at some point, it was never worth having the relationship or working with them at all. If we want to challenge that, my challenge questions would be something like, so we don't want to get better? So even if they help you get better and then when you're ready, you stop seeing them, you're telling me that it wouldn't be worth it even if you got better with their support. And then I would even dig deeper and I'd be like, okay, so... So do you think you're not worthy of getting better or does getting better mean that you won't get the attention or affection or love that you so deeply need? I'd have questions. I have questions about that. And I want you to be curious and not judgmental with yourself. You're doing the best you can. This has definitely been triggering. Something about having a treatment team and people that you need has really stirred some stuff up inside of you and made it really, really hard. And so let them know and maybe even do some journaling answering those questions I just posed because I really think that the tips on how to try and stop this is really, f- it will be found in those answers. Like what's the root of this for you? What is it that you're really afraid of? Cause it's not actually them leaving. It might be you really needing them or the fact that anyone leaving you is just too much, too painful to bear. I, I really just wanna know more about your process and what you're thinking. It's not so much that this is bad and you have to stop it. We need to let them know this is happening. And then we have to do our best to be curious because If we can't use our treatment team, then why do we have them in the first place? And clearly you need them or you wouldn't have gotten them. So, you know, we've got to just be curious, push ourselves a little bit. It's hard to open up. It's hard to trust people. Sure. Will a therapist be around for your entire life? No, probably not. And that's fucking good. That's good news. That means we got so much better that we didn't need them anymore. But does that mean they're just going to drop you out of nowhere? and not give you enough time to like transition? Absolutely not. So yeah, 
talk to them. Also, I really think potentially some DBT or dialectical behavior therapy could be beneficial for you too. Now, there was a final comment on this as as an add-on. I've been in therapy for a while lately and have struggled with being vulnerable in session. I've also downplayed things as them being okay. Then after the session, I will have an emotional breakdown in my car. I haven't mentioned this to my therapist and I don't know if I should. Oh, you should 100%. Is this something that's normal? It's definitely normal. Like we're talking about, it's really hard to be open. And if we feel like we're being open, or I guess you're feeling like you're downplaying things. So you're pretending everything's okay. And then because therapy is just an extension of your life where you just stuff everything down and be like, I'm okay, huh? don't worry. Then of course, we have an emotional outburst in our car, whether it's crying, falling apart, screaming, all of the above. We really need to be doing that in session. That's just indicative of the fact that you're like all full. Like there's no more room to stuff anything. We need to let it out. And I would definitely let your therapist know at least that this is happening. And again, what what I'm hoping will happen is your therapist will acknowledge and validate and they'll try to sneak in another way because maybe the way they're asking you questions is just too direct for you. And your defense mechanisms are, you know, so, you know, closely tuned to things like that, that when they ask anything directly, shut down minimize, push it away, pretend it didn't happen. And so we're going to need your therapist to work a little bit harder and to ask questions that don't seem so emotionally charged for you. Ask it in a different way. Start with something smaller. There's so many ways that we are trained to manage that. So letting them know is important. And yes, it's completely normal, but it means that you're not really utilizing therapy as much as you should. And you're paying for it. And we want to get your money's worth. And we want you to also start feeling better. And so let them know this is going on. Um, and said so the things that we're working on in therapy are so tough right now, trauma and grief. So I've not shown much emotion in session for a while. Well, let your therapist know that. It could be that we're not quite ready for that or that we're moving too quickly through it. Or, and probably my hypothesis would lie in this potential answer, is that we don't really have any resources or coping skills to deal with what's coming up. And so before we continue to move through this and try to talk about our trauma and grief, we're really going to have to build up some ways to cope with what will come up inevitably when we start diving into this tough stuff. And so I want you to feel like you have all the supports and all these plans and all these tools in place so that when and if something feels really shitty and we feel overwhelmed, we have something we can lean into, something we can reach for. We have a ton of tools in our tool belt and ways to manage and we'll get through it. Because I find most of us who feel like this just too stu- is too tough, I can't get into this stuff right now, it's overwhelming that could come from us going too fast in therapy or most likely just not feeling like we have the resources or coping skills to deal with it. And yes, those can be happening at the same time or separately, but I just want to draw attention to that because I think it's too often, especially when we minimize, our therapist might not think it's as big of a deal to us as it is or that it's stirring up that much in us. And they might think, oh, they have enough resources to deal with that. But the truth is you don't because you haven't really told them all that's going on. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hi, Katie, during sessions or during session, there are times when my therapist acknowledges and validates my emotions, which I love, but I have a hard time tolerating them. Oh, so uncomfortable, right? Either become very emotional because she has put words to them, or I recount a painful memory, both of which I'm fighting back tears and I dissociate. I'm still somewhat present to continue responding to her questions, but only from a place of fawning. For those of you out there who don't know what the word fawning means when it comes like in a therapeutic term, 
Fawning is when we people please like to a new level and it's usually as a result of trauma and we fawn meaning we fawn over someone and like please them in hopes that if we do everything just right that we won't be abused again or harmed in some way again and so what this person is saying is that they continue to respond and give, give her the answers but it's only because we're trying to please her it's not because we actually feel ready or able or even with it enough to do that Okay, so there are so many moments that are missed because I struggle to talk about what I'm feeling in session as I'm trying to keep a lid on my emotions. I'm curious, like, why are we trying to keep a lid on our emotions? Is it because they're so uncomfortable? Is it because they feel out of control? Is it because it's painful? I'm just curious. Okay. Also, I've come to believe almost that she can read my mind as she puts words to things that I have thought um, to have noticed about her, meaning she might back off a little if I'm getting overwhelmed or give me some space. It's very subtle. Katie, what tools and tips can I learn to tolerate my emotions and handle this situation? Thank you. Now, I love how a lot of our questions always have themes. And the theme of this, this week's podcast is kind of around being able to cope when therapy gets hard. I think that might be, that has the potential to be our, our one of our themes this week. Now, I have to have to be honest. Your therapist is getting good at reading you, which is amazing. So that means that she's noticed when you're like dissociating, when you're having a tough time, she kind of backs off to try to give you space so that you don't get overwhelmed because she's trying to keep you present. Now, the best tips I can offer you are, are kind of twofold. Because dissociation's on board here and we struggle to stay present, we're going to have to incorporate some grounding techniques. Now, grounding techniques can be anything from counting colors. So you look around the room, how many things are white or blue or brown, how many of them and what are those things? That helps. Um, we can use the alphabet. What in the room starts with the letter A and the letter B, C, you, and so on and so forth. You get it. And then there's other things like changing temperature. I know in therapy, we might not be able to do this, but if you can put like a cold rag on your head or uh, warm, if your therapist has like a little plug-in warmy blanket, I used to have one in my office. I was in Southern California and Santa Monica, so it was not very popular, but it was there. Um, weighted blankets, a silly putty in our hands. There can be a lot of different things that we can do. Even snapping a rubber band on your wrist, if that's not triggering for self-injury urges, it's been a helpful and beneficial for a lot of my uh, patients over the years. So there's a lot of different ways we're going to have to manage the dissociation. Now, the second thing is the the toleration of the emotions, and we're going to have to have some ways to cope. Now, I know a lot of times we talk about feeling our feelings and people are like, what the fuck does that mean? How do I feel my feelings? If I haven't been in touch with them forever, then how do I feel them? The real answer here is that feeling feelings means that when something comes up for us, maybe my palms start to sweat. Maybe my thoughts start to race. Maybe I take these like really deep breaths and I just feel like I can't get enough oxygen. Maybe I find my eye is twitching. Maybe, you know, I don't know. There can be a lot of different like physical symptoms of what's going on with us emotionally. And feeling your feelings is when instead of distracting with something like I'm going to get on my phone and get into social media, or I'm going to play Candy Crush, or I'm going to zone out and watch a TV show, instead of distracting with something else, I'm going to just allow myself to be present and notice what's coming up for me. And noticing is like, hey, I notice that my thoughts are racing. I notice that I'm feeling kind of anxious, or I'm just worrying a lot about stuff that 
frankly doesn't matter or oh, I'm falling into that pit of despair. I can feel my mind doing it. I feel the muscles in my back tensing up or I'm clenching my fists or my jaw without realizing it, right? There are some things that we can kind of notice and that noticing and allowing instead of distracting or shutting down is what we mean when we say feel our feelings. Instead of distracting, talking trash to yourself or doing something else, we're just gonna be aware, be part of it. Don't just be a passenger in it. Be active, like an active participant in the emotion, you know? It's hard and it takes some practice, but don't think you have to like feel the feelings and they're going to be so overwhelmingly painful and just too much for you to bear because here's the truth. Feelings are just feelings. They're not facts. It's something that's come up for us and they come and they go very quickly. Like I'm talking, um, I'd say if we allow ourselves to feel them and be in them instead of push, shove them down, stuff them back, try to forget about it, distract, 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 they maybe last for five to 20 minutes maximum. And I'm given 20 minutes because sometimes there's a situation going on and we're angry or happy or whatever about that situation. And so until that situation like resolves or we get to get that out, oh, I'm so excited, yay, 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 we'll feel that for longer. But I really think it's usually like two to three minutes, if I'm being honest. So even less than five. Because things come up, right? Oh, that's so frustrating. And then immediately, if we don't distract, we're like, that's so frustrating. I'm so angry. What an asshole that person is. And we feel it. And then our brain goes into like, well, how do I manage this, right? We go into problem solving mode, or at least how do I deal with this for me kind of mode. And it takes us a couple of minutes to figure out, oh, okay. I guess my options are blah, 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 this, that, or the other. I think I'm going to do this. And we move on. Or if it's just an emotion that has come up and we're like, I just feel so sad today. I wonder why I feel sad. I think I feel sad. And we try to think about it and we allow ourselves to feel sad and we dive in. I'm sad because, you know, the holidays are over and it's just kind of depressing and I thought things would be different and they're not or whatever. Hmm. Okay, we've acknowledged, we've, we've accepted, we've validated our emotion and then I'm telling you, it goes away. I know those of us who've been stuffing down our whole lives are like, that's not true. It's overwhelming and it's scary. Sure, it can feel that way because it's unknown, because it's uncomfortable, because it's not something that we've been doing before, but it still goes away pretty quickly. I promise you. It's like a panic attack. Panic attacks don't last very long. Sure, every second of a panic attack feels like a fucking eternity, but they're gone in like 60 to 90 seconds. If you can just hang in, they're gone. And same with your emotions. They'll be gone. Now, um, I don't know if I answered the question on this. Sorry, I got off on a tangent. It says, what tools and tips can I learn to tolerate my emotions? Breathing, journaling, giving yourself an opportunity to be curious about them, not judgmental. Um, and having some tools. So I have a video called 25 Coping Skills. And I really think that when we're wanting to fawn, so you you find yourself wanting people please hardcore, the impulse log. Um, I even have it in my book, Traumatized. I think I can find, hold on, I've got it here. In my new book, Traumatized, I showcase my favorite impulse log that comes from um, selfinjury.com, I think is their website. But anyways, it's towards the back of the book. And oh, there it is. I saw it. It's on page 190 and 191. I think it goes all the way. Yeah. To, so 190, 191. 
in my new book, Traumatized, it's available now, I walk you through how to utilize an impulse log. But I think in the case of fawning, that's the impulse is I want to fawn. I want to people please. And then I want you to break down like, what is it that's really coming up for you? What's causing you to want to do this fawning? Um, maybe what emotions are it might be fear. It might be vulnerability. It might be overwhelm. You can also just get online and go to feelingswheel.com to look up some feelings if you're struggling with names for that. Um, but anyways, that will help you kind of better understand them, better manage, and the impulse log will help you from doing the thing, or at least even reflecting back on what else we could have done instead of doing that act- action. Does that make sense? Like instead of funny, what else can we do? And then having those other coping skills on board will really, really help. Um, yeah. So we talked about the dissociation, talked about other tools. I hope that helps. Now, we had a comment on this is I feel like I'm in a similar situation. I desperately crave validation from my therapist. And when it's offered to me, it is so incredibly triggering. Interesting. How do I begin to manage and balance this double-edged sword? Tell your therapist this is happening. My thoughts are that that actually getting validation that you, the validation and support that you need is something that was probably never offered in childhood or in your life, maybe up until this point. And so even though we know that we want it and we crave it, when we get it, we're like, what the fuck is this? I don't even know how to deal with this. And then we can go into a trauma response where we're like, I'm too vulnerable. This is too much. Puffer fish, right? We stick out our spines, puffer fish, get away. I'm too vulnerable and too soft and squishy. I'm going to get hurt. But let your therapist know that this is happening because I, like even my homework for you right now would be for you to be curious, remember curious, not judgmental about what is so triggering for you. It's easy for us to say, oh, I'm so triggered. I had an emotional response. It's harder for us to say, what was that emotional response and why do we think it was triggering? And I want you to be curious. Did anything that I say, like I said, just then did that resonate with you? Do you think it's because it's so uncomfortable because we haven't heard that kind of loving support before, or haven't been validated before, or is it our negative self-talk? Are we just telling ourselves it's not worth it? We're making it into something more than it is, where we minimize as a child, or we told that our issues weren't that big of a deal before? I don't know. I have a lot of questions. And I think you should have some questions too and figure out, you know, why that particular exchange with your therapist is so incredibly triggering. Um, Because once we know that, then we can do something to change it. We can do something to better manage it. And one of those ways to manage is what I was talking about previously, which is like building up those um, like grounding techniques or coping skills, some other resources so that you don't feel so emotionally volatile where it's like, oh, this is going to happen and I'm going to feel triggered. and I can't, I can't stay present or I can't continue the session. I'd like put up my defenses and zone out. Um, And so, yeah. So how do I begin to manage and balance this? I think part of it's just being curious about it. Again, not judgmental, just curious, be a detective and try to figure out what is it about that that is so triggering. And can we let our therapist know that as we discover it? Or can we at least let them know what you told me that like, hey, when you offer me validation, I really crave it and it's wonderful. But then immediately I find it incredibly triggering. And I don't know why you know, can we at least let them know that? Because that will be really, really helpful. And you can then together, if you're not able to do it on your own, together, you can figure out the why, like, why is this happening? Okay, let's move on to question number three. Now, question number three says, hey, Katie, any tips for nighttime anxiety? During the day when I'm at work, 
I'm fine. Virtually no anxiety. Ooh, distractions. I love distractions like work, school, friends, events. So easy to not feel anxious, right? I don't know whether the anxiety is truly less or since I have a fast paced job, I simply don't notice it as much. Ding, ding, ding. But once nighttime comes and I start to relax or go to bed, the anxiety comes flooding in. My mind isn't necessarily racing, but the physical symptoms are almost always there. I feel like I just can't lie still and falling asleep or staying asleep is always a challenge. 100% it's the distraction of work and life that keeps you from experiencing any of your anxiety symptoms. And then we have no more distractions left. We lay down to go to bed and our brain and body are like, whoa, 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 whoa. now's the time, right? Now we get to be anxious. There's no nothing around. Let's worry about some shit we did 12 years ago. Why our brain does that? I will never know, but I do know that Talking about it in therapy will help. Doing a full body shake before bed, maybe a couple times. Sometimes I do two of them. And if I wake up in the middle of the night still feeling anxious, I get up and do a body shake again. And when I talk about body shakes, I mean from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, I want you to shake out like a wet dog out of the bath because what that does is it initiates the release of energy that your nervous system has queued up when it's anxious. It's really our stress response. So it's really queuing us up for fight flight. But if we can't move, can't run, we can't fight it. What, what, what is it even that we're worried about? We don't even know. There's so many things, right? There's nothing we can really do. We can shake it out. We can get it out of our system so that it doesn't interrupt our sleep and potentially lead to other mental illnesses like PTSD responses, depression, anxiety, like you're experiencing, et cetera. So doing those shakes. And then also something that has been helpful for me, for many of my patients, is jotting some things down before you go to bed and not on your phone. We don't want backlit items. We want to have like a pad and a piece of paper or a pad of paper and a pen, (laughs) pad and piece of paper, geez, Katie, Um, next to our bed and take some notes about the things that are coming up for you or the things that you want need to do the next day. I don't even care. Jot down whatever comes up, write it down. Get it out of your head so that you can forget about it. Because sometimes I find that we wake up in the middle of the night because we're like, shit, I have to pay that bill. Or, oh my God, I didn't email that person back or whatever. And that will bubble up and cause us anxiety. And instead of having to consider, like consistently worry about it and be like, don't forget, don't forget, do that in the morning. Don't forget, do that in the morning. We can write it down and we can let it be and know that we will wake up in the morning. We'll look at that paper and we'll be able to take care of it. And so that can really, really be helpful as well. And then there's also medication. I'm not talking about sedatives for sleep. I really think that sleep, um, it it can be helpful for you to have a sleep aid for a very short period of time, but sleep aids are really just getting rid of a symptom. They're not getting rid of the root. They're not helping us fix whatever's going on. People who've been struggling for with sleep for a really long time usually have something bigger happening. And if we fix the sleep, it's just like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. It's not really going to help anything. It'll help us kind of sleep for a while, but we actually need to like process the trauma or manage our anxiety symptoms better. And so, yeah, okay. So sleep aids can be beneficial, but what I'm talking about when I talk about medication is more like antidepressants or other treatments like that. Talk to your psychiatrist, find out what options are available for you and make choices based on what is best for you. Um, And ask all the questions about side effects and things like that. But I think that is all. Okay. Let's move on to the comment of this question. They said, as someone with crippling PTSD and really traumatic nightmares almost every night, I find myself getting more and more anxious around bedtime. 
It doesn't matter what I do to relax or what I do for a routine, what I think about or rehearse or dream, or even after trauma therapy, I still get really anxious and I hate sleeping. What can one do? Kind of the same thing I mentioned before. We can do the full body shakes. We can write things out. Um, And you said you've tried a routine, which that routines for anybody out there who struggles with sleep routines can be really healing and allow us to finally get some rest and reprieve. Um, It's almost like our brain and body just get into this rhythm and they're like, okay, we're getting ready. This is the time that we go to sleep. Um, I know L-theanine and melatonin is something that's been mentioned to a lot of my patients over the years and I've used it off and on as well. Those are just over the counter like vitamin things. I'm not a doctor, so please consult with your doctor before starting anything like that. But I think the the thing for this person here is to talk with your therapist about it and let them know, maybe see your psychiatrist and talk with them. Because my hypothesis is that because you're doing trauma therapy, that's what's stirring this up for you. And we might need to do an impulse log before bed, do full body shakes. We might want to do something that's helped me when I'm having a really tough time falling asleep or I'm afraid. Have you ever woken up from a nightmare and you like don't want to go back into it? But So you're like, don't go back to sleep. Oh, but you're tired. I will imagine a dream. I'll put together a dream in my mind and tell myself the story in as much detail as possible. Like I'll imagine that I'm floating in the ocean outside of Hawaii, right? And it's like super warm and I can feel the sun on my skin and, you know, my hair is kind of floating in the water. Like tell yourself it in grave detail. What do you smell? What do you feel? What's around you? What's happening? And where are you going to go next? And start piecing that dream together. And surprisingly, you'll be able to fall asleep, hopefully for many people this works, like I said, but not everybody. And then you'll be in a happy, wonderful dream and be able to fall asleep and hopefully stay asleep because it's usually the nightmares, the night terrors that are associated with our PTSD that cause us to continue to wake up and not get a good night's sleep. And that's where medication can come in and help, but we can definitely do those things to assist. I also have my patients in the past do some Hatha yoga, H-A-T-H-A, or some mellow yoga. You can just probably look up like yoga with Adrienne, someone that a lot of my patients have utilized over the years. And I've even done some of her courses um, over the years too. But finding a mellow yoga that you can do for like bedtime, like bedtime yoga, moving our body is really, really helpful in healing and can get some of that energy out. Again, like those full body shakes, it can do that. And it can also, um, you know, help us feel like we're releasing maybe some of the tension or some of the other things happening. And yeah, that's really, that's really the best thing that we can do for ourselves. Okay. Now there's another comment on this and it says moreover. And I oh, also, before I move on from that, there are, I have a ton of videos about sleep and sleep hygiene on my channel. It sounds like the person who asked this, asked this might've already watched one of them, but you can check those out. If you're, if you have a question similar to this and you're wondering, just get on YouTube and put like sleep Katie Morton and it should come up. Now, somebody else said, moreover, is there such a thing as sundowning for depression and anxiety? Now, if anybody's heard the term sundowner or sundowning, it's usually applied to older people who struggle with Alzheimer's or dementia, where when the sun goes down, things can get kind of worse. And I believe as I say that, I'm like, I should have, uh, I should have looked it up to double check. Okay. So it says they may experience sundowning, restless agitation, irritability, or confusion can begin to worsen as daylight begins to fade. Um, okay. So, and that says for Alzheimer's people is what they're mentioning in dementia. Yeah. Okay. So I was correct, but it's like more irritability, agitation, and just feeling kind of, it's like the symptoms get worse. And so 
I do not believe that there's such a thing as sundowning when it comes to depression and anxiety. It's not the same as like Alzheimer's and dementia. There's reasons they believe that sun, the sundowning takes effect for those people. I think when it comes to depression, and anxiety, the distractions are gone. And that's like the person who first asked this question. That's why we don't have anything else in our world that's there to pull our attention away, which is why many of my patients will stay up super, super late until they're like super dog tired so that when they lay down to go to bed, they're like, they're out. Because if they don't, then there's no distractions and then you're left with your thoughts and yourself and that can be really uncomfortable. And that's honestly why it could be also another helpful tip would be to take time to set time, to set time aside during the day to just be with yourself. Like the other night I took a bath for the first time in probably like six or seven years, you guys. And I just put on spa music and didn't have my phone in the room or no computer, no TV on, no nothing. And just kind of sat there and thought about things. And I'll be honest, it was uncomfortable, but it slowly got more and more comfortable. And I think that practice of just being with ourselves, being quiet, knowing it's okay to not be distracted by a zillion things and just notice what comes up because that's actually all of our, we have all of our answers inside of us. We just don't spend the time to listen when when our body tries to tell us we're too busy stuffing down and white knuckling in it and pushing through and so if we can just allow ourselves to not be distracted and feel what comes up i think that we'll see less of this nighttime effect now there was a final comment on this says hi katie can you also talk about the opposite i told my therapist that i struggle to sleep and sometimes i won't sleep at all but it's not really because my anxiety is high in fact, the more stressed and anxious I am, the easier it is for me to sleep. I think it's a way for me to escape those feelings. Mm -hmm. But clearly my therapist has never heard of that and we drew a blank. I'm wondering if this is even a thing or if I'm just an oddball. Thanks. No, I mean, everybody's different, right? So you're not just an oddball. This could definitely be a thing because if your anxiety and worries, like you're stressed and overwhelmed, you probably worn yourself out. And so by the time you go to sleep, it's like, it's your escape. It's actually your distraction is to sleep. And I, if I'm being honest as a kid, that was how I was. If I had a really stressful time or like, I remember as a teenager breaking up with a boyfriend, like he was breaking up with me and it was really sad and I was very upset and I just didn't want to deal with it. And so I would just go to sleep. <laughs> and my mom was so like, what are you doing? And I was like, I just don't, I can't deal. I'm just going to go take a nap. And a lot of people deal with that that way. It's just another distraction. It's another way to numb out. And that's what I used to do is I would just sleep as well. And so I really think, because um, you were saying it's easier for you to sleep. So that is a thing. Um, oh, so the opposite, I get. So to be truthful, again, part of the process for everyone and for, for you in particular, because it's kind of that reverse that you're, that you're um, struggling with, is to at least make set some time aside or make some time to consider what's going on and to acknowledge what you're stressed or anxious about, to write it down, to give it language, to put words to it and to validate your experience. If we don't give ourselves that time, then we're just going to keep zonking out. We're like, peace and we're out, right? Um, or for the other people, we're not going to be able to sleep. So it doesn't actually matter what the result is. Either way, we're numbing out. And in that numbing out, it's either making it impossible for us to sleep or the sleep is our numbing out. Um, and so I think identifying those feelings and experiences that come up and validating and allowing that to happen, not to fight it or distract it, will be where the where we actually are able to process it and not have this happen anymore, if that makes sense. 
Okay, let's move on to question number four. And this question says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how aspects of our identity are impacted by therapy. I feel like a completely different person to the one who started therapy. And I wonder if there's any pattern to how clients relearn our understanding of or relationships to and definition of ourselves. I wondered if it's the same kind of self-discovery that those not in therapy might eventually go through, but accelerated or exaggerated. Interesting question. I can't imagine what I'd be like or how I'd think and feel about myself had I never been in therapy. Me either. It blows my mind that someone might go through their entire lives without actively trying to get to know themselves and never feeling drawn to. I know, same. Would love any thoughts on this and thank you and happy new year. Happy new year to you as well. Love this question. I feel that way too, people who've gone their entire lives without therapy. I'm like, how? Oh my God, do you even know yourself? And the truth is a lot of people don't know themselves. And that's not a put down on them. Like, oh, you don't even know yourself. I'm like, I'm so much better. That's not what this is about. This is more about the fact that there are gonna be people who just aren't interested in building a relationship with themselves. Let's be honest, our society doesn't necessarily support it all the time. We have a society of distract, distract, purchase, purchase. It's kind of this like intense marketing scheme to get us to spend more money and think less about ourselves and do less for ourselves. Yeah, it's, we're kind of in a numb out time, especially with social media and just access to distractions, right? It's so they're everywhere and therefore it can be really easy for us to get sucked in. And okay, so those are my thoughts about that. And so there are, and I find that shocking too, because the, the amount of personal growth I've experienced through therapy and the amount of personal growth I still want to experience through therapy that I will do, you know, I'm like, I just can't imagine my life without it. And I think any of us who've really been in therapy and have witnessed or had at least one of those aha moments where you're like, oh my God, my life, right? Wow, I've been doing this forever. I didn't even, oh my God. We can have those moments. And once you have those and like your perception is different. And I just felt, even though it's hard, hard work, it's so worth it. And I just can't imagine not having a life with that. Anyways, okay. But back up to the top of this question, the aspects of our identity, like how they're impacted by therapy. I think that for most people, they will not have that kind of self-discovery unless they go looking for it. Therefore, yes, those of us who've gotten into therapy have an accelerated plan to self-discovery and we will have a greater understanding of ourselves in the world and what that means and how we can interact with others in a more beneficial way. But people who don't go looking for that are not going to find it. I do not believe personally, and this is definitely just a belief, right? I don't know if there's research about this. I haven't heard anybody talking about it, but there could be something out there, some research. But I do not think that people who do not get into therapy will have that those same moments of self-discovery. And here's why. And if you disagree, feel free to leave it in the comments. That's totally fair. But I don't believe so because... There are things that we as individuals are not going to be able to see or challenge about ourselves. That's why therapy or, you know, any kind of personal work we do, I'll even throw in there, like even just taking like a weekend kind of retreat or even having like some kind of career coach or someone in our life. If we don't have another perspective and someone else on the outside looking in, we can't see it. We have blinders on. 
We have complete blind spots in our life or things are so uncomfortable that we're just going to avoid it and we don't have anybody that's challenging us to look again, right? And I just do not believe that for the most part, I'd, I'd even estimate like 85% of people don't have that kind of oomph to do that work because it's hard. And if no one's pointing it out to us, we might not even think there's a problem. I cannot tell you how many of my patients' parents have come in and they're in like their 50s or 60s, some are even older. And they'll say, well, I thought about therapy, but I would never because, you know, if you pull the string, the whole thing's going to come unraveled. Like they're barely holding it together, which tells me even that person who has insight into the fact that their life is like barely held together still doesn't want to reach out for help because of what it might reveal. And I think a lot of times people lean into very comfortably to the ignorance is bliss type of life experience. And to be honest, I think it's kind of a bummer. I mean, it's definitely a bummer to not have that awareness and not have that deep self-understanding. I just feel like it's changed. It's made me such a better person. I was such an asshole before and so easily angered. And man, I'm sure a lot of you out there can kind of commiserate with that, that like it's definitely made me a better person for myself and for others. And why wouldn't I want to do that work? Right. Okay. But I'm going off on a tangent, but um, let's say, let's see the other questions here. Um, so, okay. And I wondered if there's any pattern to how clients relearn our understanding of a relationship to definition of ourselves. Okay. So that's all. Um, yeah. And I feel like a completely different person too, as well as the person who asked this question. Um, and there's no real pattern, but there are these like aha moments or blips of like self-discovery and then through behavioral change, when we try to act with around others in a more healthy way, then other things start to change where relationships might shift. We might shed some of those really unhealthy relationships that we leave room open for other healthier relationships. Um, but there's no, there is like a certain pattern when it comes to like the steps that we take as we learn and discover and become new people, almost like a metamorphosis, if you will. But since we all continue to grow and change, especially if we continue in this therapeutic path, those steps will just continue. So it's almost like we have these moments of self-discovery that's followed by some change in our life, whether that's through communication or other changes. And then that shifts our relationships with ourselves and with others. And then we have more self-discovery and again and again and again. And I think that's actually how we really slowly develop into who we are. And so that that is kind of the pattern that I see. And I think that's all... Um, yeah, so those are my thoughts. Now, there was an add-on to this and it said, how might you work with a patient who really struggles with their identity if they're no longer their illness and they have not been able to form any sense of self due to a strict upbringing and complex PTSD? Growing up, um, I think I had gender dysphoria. Thanks. Now, when it comes to identity, that's something that I think a lot of us struggle with over the, over the years as we grow, as we change, as we figure out who we are. And I have my patients do a couple of things. I have a video about like building confidence. And while you might say, well, identity doesn't have anything to do with confidence, it definitely does. We need to find something that we're good at. We need to be able to feel free to explore. And we're not going to feel free to explore if we don't have any confidence in ourselves. And those, so they kind of work together. And so I'm always challenging my patients to start writing about things they like and don't like. I have them journal a lot about some of their favorite experiences in their life or things they did not like at all. Likes and dislikes are really, really helpful. 
And so I'll have my patients start there. Then I have them write about relationships they've had that they liked and didn't like and what aspects of that relationship did they like and not like. And then through that, we start to piece together some of the things that we like and don't like to do, things that we look for in relationships and things that we would want to avoid. And it helps us better grow as we develop other relationships and the one with ourselves. Now it's slow, it's tedious, we have to try out some new things like I have my patients usually uh, commit to trying one new thing a month. And I know you might think, well, you could do one a week. That's too much, I find. I find my patients just are not up for that. But if you are, go for it. Um, And connecting with people online who share in, especially like gender dysphoria and things like that, there's a ton of communities online for us to kind of dabble in it because I always am encouraging my patients and, and you, any of my viewers, to be okay with questioning things and being curious. We don't have to have answers. We don't have to say, I am X, Y, or Z. We don't have to say that. We can be questioning and learning. Life is all about learning about ourselves and our environment. And I encourage that kind of like studious type stance when we work on identity. I always tell my patients, I'm like, I want you to be a student of yourself. I want you to slowly learn a little bit about some things like you like and don't like. Like it sounds silly, but do you like spicy foods or not? Do you like to get a massage or a pedicure? Or are you not into that kind of self-care? Do you just prefer quiet time? Do you like being outdoors or not? And I don't let them just automatically go off the cuff and say, I like this or I don't. I'm like, I want you to try it and I want you to report back. And when you try it, I want you to tell me what it was and why it worked or why it didn't. Tell me. We can't just assume. It's all of that assuming, well, I don't know if I would, where it keeps us stuck, keeps us with, like prevents us from growing, prevents us from getting to know ourselves and keeps us in the rut that we're already in. Yeah. So that's, that's really how I work with my patients. And then someone said, also entered therapy with a notion that I am pansexual. And now I feel that I'm a lesbian. What aspect of therapy impacted this? Just the ability to question and to get to know yourself. Hopefully. Um, I never encourage my patients to like have to label anything. I kind of, I just encourage them to be curious again, be a student of themselves and to be able to to try out different words and see if that fits with them and different identities, especially when we're in the LGBTQ plus community. Like, what is it that speaks to us? What is it we want to be curious more about? Do we think that we're bisexual? Do we think, you know, what is it? Um, and so I really think that the freedom to question and and be curious and get to know yourself slowly but surely without any pressure is hopefully what led to that realization for you. Because I think it's that excel, that like acceptance and validation from the therapist and self-acceptance and compassion from yourself that would have led you to to come to that that understanding about who you are. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This says, hi, Katie, is it normal to feel stressed around people who are fighting? Ooh, I don't like it either. I feel super stressed. When I hear someone arguing, I suddenly start feeling uncomfortable and scared as if I'm in danger. Ooh, this sounds like a PTSD response, not just not liking fighting. Hmm. But in reality, I know that there's nothing that can happen to me. It doesn't matter. It's triggering. Others around me often have a chill attitude towards seeing others raise their voice and don't feel stressed at all, or at least don't look like it. And I just don't know why I struggle with this so much. I suppose it could have something to do with the fact that I can relate to highly sensitive people. Or can there be other reasons? Also, there are rare times when I feel completely normal in arguments, usually when I feel in control of how it goes. Interesting. Disagreements can have a lot of potential for growth and are normal, but many of them just stress me out too much. And I've often found it weird how some people would say that it's healthy for parents to argue in front of children because even as a young adult, it's just not my thing. 
What does it mean and how can I stop stressing out so much? So being a highly sensitive person definitely makes us more acutely aware of emotions in a room and we can feel them more intensely and we can feel for other people more and we can struggle with boundaries. So if someone else is being harmed or hurt or emotionally manipulated, that can hurt us as well because we're like, no, 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 no. I hate it. I hate, stop doing it, right? We don't want anybody else to be hurt. We're very sensitive. We feel for other people sometimes too much. I definitely relate to that and am that person as well. However, when it comes to arguments, you're, you said that you're uncomfortable and scared as if you're in danger. Now, that fact to me screams trauma. I don't know if that doesn't ring true for you, but that's as a therapist, I'd be very curious. I have a ton of questions about things that happened in your past, or maybe if you even had like a, a teacher who shouted a lot in school or anything. I would have a lot of questions because that's the red flag that's up for me. Not really the highly sensitive person or any people pleasing or anything like that. And I agree disagreements can have a lot of potential for growth, but it's triggering to you because either it reminds you of something that happened, maybe uh, in your household, no one ever raised their voice. So it's like, we're super uncomfortable because we don't even know how to manage that. I find people who grew up in what we would call like a waspy type family, where it was like, nobody really talked loudly, nobody fought, nobody argued, which is quiet, right? We just like, we're passive aggressive. So we don't actually know how to have healthy conflict or healthy disagreement, it's all bad. And so that could maybe be why, because we're like, I don't even know what this is super foreign. And so it feels very out of control and feels scary. So let's say trauma doesn't ring true. It could also be that, that was just so foreign. And that's actually where I kind of, how I grew up. Like my parents did not fight around me. I know no one ever raised their voice. No one shouted in my family. Like Sean and I both agree. We grew up in kind of like families who were very more passive aggressive and quiet. Hence my urge to people, please, right? We don't don't like conflict. Oh, no, no, no. Um, and so it's very uncomfortable for me to be in conflict. I don't actually know how it took me. I mean, I'm still working on it, but it took me many years in therapy to figure out how I could have like healthy conflict with people and work towards resolution versus what I would do is I would either completely avoid or like burn it down. It was like black or white. And so it doesn't have to be dissolution of the relationship or no fight at all. My therapist worked with me tirelessly on that because that was very difficult for me. And so anyway, I think those are probably the two camps of where that could be coming from. And I would just encourage you to be curious about it. Don't judge yourself. We're trying to figure out where this came from and why it's here. And as someone who's been working on this for a long time, it it, it is uncomfortable. Again, it's almost like in the same way if we had if it if it was trauma based, it getting closer and almost like identifying that trigger and then still pushing through and like coming into contact with it and saying that's what that is. You know what I mean? Like the exposure therapy component of it where we actually expose ourselves to the trigger more. It's really uncomfortable, but I'm here to tell you that as you do it, there's, it's like, things are interesting, at least for me, when you're, when you push past your comfort level, there's like this peak of anxiety. So it starts to build and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to fight. Oh my God, I hate, I hate arguments. Oh my God, they're going to hate me. I'm going to, and I like, had to tell myself my mantras of like, it's not going to be the end of the world. You don't have to explode. Find some other ways to express your upset versus through, you know, I would be like harsh, you guys, like just burn it down. Try to find a way to communicate clearly, yet not 
completely emotionally driven about how you're feeling and what's going on. This anxiety starts to build and then you realize it's actually going to be okay. You kind of come down the other side and it's a really amazing feeling to not have that fight hangover from someone who hates conflict. If I actually got into a fight with someone, I'd have a hangover after where I'd be like, oh my God, like, cause I would say horrible things and get super, super angry and frustrated. Like if someone pushed me too far, it was like unleash the beast. And I, that's why I hated it so much. Cause I, it felt so out of control. But once I figured out a way to clearly communicate what I was experiencing, take breaks when I needed to, which I needed to do a lot, not let someone amp me up because I was so susceptible to like manipulation and gaslighting and all sorts of shit like that. I'd get so discombobulated. But once I could figure out a way to kind of keep my head, stay out of my emotion mind, stay in my wise mind, communicate what I'm feeling, tell them what I think they're trying to say, like try to repeat back. I What I hear you saying is this, they correct or not. It's like, it was, it's life changing, you guys. I can't even tell you that not having that hangover effect, not feeling like, oh my God, like just the remorse. And then I would beat myself up and then it would go into people pleasing mode. It was a horrible cycle. And so figuring out that that anxiety will build and that it will come down and you'll be okay. It's going to be okay. Trust me. It's really uncomfortable at first. But then as you do it, that anxiety peak, it kind of goes from being like a really, really tall mountain into kind of just like a rolling hill. To being pretty much gone altogether. So I know that was a very long-winded answer. And sorry if you heard me burp, I burped and I apologize. Excuse me. Um, but that's that's kind of what it means. That's how you can manage it. It's kind of got to go through it, find new ways to communicate, new ways to deal with it. But I, again, trauma or potentially your family just never argued, so you don't know how. And that's why people say it's healthy for parents to argue in front of children. It 100% is, but there are boundaries or limitations around that because we don't want parents like screaming at each other. We don't want parents name calling or anything like that, but it is important as someone whose parents didn't do that. It is important for parents to argue in front of their children, have disagreements and come out on the other side. It's also important for us to argue with our kids and to disagree with them and to validate their experience, validate yours and tell them it's going to be okay. And we're going to work towards, you know, resolution. Now we don't, obviously with kids, it's not like there's always give and take because you're the parent and they're the child. And sometimes they want something that just can't be, can't, you know, they can't have, but having those disagreements, I think is really key for our own emotional growth so that we know how to have disagreements and arguments as adults without like burning it down. Cause that would have saved me so much money in therapy. Oh my God. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hi, Katie, how do I deal with suicide as one of my intrusive thoughts? Oh, super common intrusive thought. I've dealt with depression, but I'm not suicidal. One of my greatest fears in life is becoming suicidal. So naturally I have intrusive thoughts about being suicidal and committing suicide. How sad would people be if I died, et cetera? Why do I keep having these thoughts and what can I do to stop them? Thanks for being the, thank you for being the best. Oh, you're so sweet, of course. Um, You're the best. Okay. If you hear uh, Roxy barking, she's outside playing with Sean. Okay, so dealing with suicidal thoughts is one of your intrusive thoughts is truly, it's, it's because it's that fear. And so I would encourage you to be curious about it. Now, I know some people are like, oh my God, why would you ask me to be curious about it? That seems so dangerous. Not necessarily. Suicide is something that we've all had intrusive, or not all, most people have some intrusive thoughts from time to time. Like you're driving over a bridge. You're like, I could just pull, I could just drive right off here, right? We'll have those weird. And you're like, what am I thinking? It's very common. Intrusive thoughts are usually violent or sexual in nature. Why? 
I don't know, but that's just the truth. And so if we're having these kinds of thoughts that pop up, like would who would people really be sad if I died? Or like, maybe this is how I would take my own life, like a drive off a bridge or something, right? So we're going to have to consider it and be curious about what its triggers are, why it's there, and kind of address that fear. And bring this up with your therapist. And I would talk to them so that we can kind of have them help guide us because this process is going to be a little tricky in that I don't want you spending all day thinking about suicide. I don't want this to increase your urges or anything. I know you don't have them, but I'm just saying that like, I don't want to lead us down that path so much. We want to be very controlled and very cautious about how we address this, but I don't think there's anything wrong with you considering this fear. Why are we so afraid of it when it's something that we really have complete control over? And if we take care of ourselves, take care of our mental health, see a therapist, talk to friends about how we feel, we journal, we use all our skills, right? We do all the things we can do. Then I'm curious why it's a fear. Do you know what I mean? I want you to dig into that. I want you to be curious about your fear, where it came from, why it's here. Have we had a friend talk about it or a family member or why is it something that's up on that top of the list, right? Greatest fears. It's one of your greatest fears in life. I want you to journal about why. Tell me. I'm curious. Let us know. Because once we know that and we actually dive into it instead of run away from it, I believe the intrusive thoughts will go away because if the, for those of you out there who don't understand intrusive thoughts, they're a huge part of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. And in my belief system, they are completely anxiety driven. So if we just head on are curious about this, why is this so scary? I would even encourage you to be like, what is it that's, you know, becoming suicidal? Why is that so such a fearful thing? Like, you know, um, have I ever been told that before? When did this thought come about? How long have I been believing this? You know, because I'm here to tell you that even patients of mine who've been, you know, actively suicidal, not just having these intrusive thoughts, like actually, you know, struggling to stay here with us, are able to come out of it. They're able to manage it. I know it can sound like it's a scary thing, but not when you're in control of it and when you're getting help. It's okay. It's just a symptom. It's a symptom of something going on. It's because we feel hopeless or helpless. We just need someone to kind of light that fire for us to remind us that things can get better. And we see that little spark kind of get us going. Um, anyway, I guess just being curious about it. Those thoughts are definitely anxiety driven. It's part of it's that's why they're intrusive. Intrusive thoughts are always like that. And being curious about them and running like hitting it head on is how you will make them go away. And I know that that sounds like the opposite of what you would assume, but just trust me here. And even if, so if you have a compulsion, I don't know if you have this, but is there something that you do to kind of make yourself feel safe? Like, I don't know if there, when you have this intrusive thought, if there's like a ritual around something that you do, a compulsion um, maybe that makes you feel like less anxious about it. If there is something like that, I want you to stop doing that thing. I want you to let the anxiety hang. Because the only way to get rid of those obsessions and that intrusive thought is to not act on the compulsion, to not do anything to like calm your fears. We just address it and acknowledge it and know that it will it will go. It'll go away. And that will make those intrusive thoughts go away as well. Okay. Now there's a comment on this and says, hello, hello, Katie. Well, how do you do? Says, I hope this pertains to the question. Additionally, does this mean that we are inherently dangerous to ourselves or others? Nope. Especially when we don't have plans or want to go through with it? Nope. I am single. 
or I am a single widower with no plans to get married again. I'm so sorry for your loss. No children with major depressive disorder and PTSD and a bit of a loner. I also enjoy owning and shooting an array of firearms. That's your right. That's fine. Which can be viewed as cause for concern due to chronic mental health struggles. What are your thoughts on safety and possibly chronic suicidal intrusive thoughts with regard to their relationship and having access to firearms or weapons? I have been desperately trying to find insight on this to no end. So hopefully this question makes sense. I hope you have a beautiful day. Yeah, of course. You're very welcome and happy new year to you too. Now, um, intrusive suicidal thoughts do not mean that we are inherently danger, dangerous to ourselves or someone else. That's they're, they're just thoughts. Thoughts are not facts and they're not actions. It's when we start putting into place some actions, meaning like putting a plan together, gathering the means to harm people. That's when things start to get a little scary and are worrisome. And as a therapist, then we have to take some safety protocols and start doing some more things to check in on you and to make sure that you're okay. Now, the fact that you enjoy shooting firearms does not alarm me unless some that's some of your suicidal thoughts and you actually are active because you said that you <laughs> did you say you have plans no you don't have plans or want to go through with it um so i don't think that there's any cause for concern i've had patients who have access to firearms and it hasn't it doesn't really frighten me but it's important that you're honest with your therapist and you talk about what's going on and what's happening. Like you said, you have, you know, PTSD, major depressive disorder, you're a bit of a loner. Please find a therapist and talk to them. Because you don't have a plan or the you don't want to go through with it, I don't believe that you want to. So you do what you want to do. This doesn't mean that we have to take away your firearms, that you shouldn't be able to do whatever you want to do. That's If those are things that bring you joy and that's something you you want to do in your free time, I support that. And just having access to the means. So many people have access to means to harm themselves. And that doesn't mean that any of us are going to, right? And so that doesn't, passive thoughts that just kind of come and go and hang around does not mean that we're inherently dangerous or that there's a huge cause for concern. But it's definitely something to bring up with your therapist so that they can continue to assess it. Because something I do with my patients is if they tell me that they have suicidal thoughts, I'm every session, I mean, I do this almost always anyway, but every session I'm checking in with them. Have you had any more suicidal thoughts? Are they hanging around for a really long time? Do we have any means? Is there a plan? Do you have a deadline? I'm asking all sorts of things. Just have have someone that's checking in on you. That's what the therapist is supposed to do. So you want them to just keep assessing to make sure that there's still no risk because we know it can change sometimes and we want to make sure that you're safe. Now, the final comment on this is if this question gets picked up, then I would like to add on that I get thoughts like, I should just kill myself by doing it this way. It's very specific, but the thought comes and then goes away. I'm not worried about my safety, but it happens on and off. I don't mention anything to my therapist since the way he confronted me once about the subject, and now I don't feel comfortable talking about it anymore. What should I do now? Keep an eye on it. Pay attention to it. I wish you could tell your therapist about it because that would be my number one encouragement. Maybe find another therapist because I want you to be able to tell them, hey, I have these passive suicidal thoughts just kind of pop in and go away and they're uncomfortable and I don't like them, but I just want to make you aware because the truth is I just want you to be aware. I have videos about creating safety plans, by the way, and how to talk about it and all sorts of different suicidal based videos, but I really just think it's important that someone knows so that we can ensure that we're kept safe and you know being honest with yourself and and assessing it is really important it doesn't sound like it's because you said it's like 
you're not worried about your safety. And for my patients, when they're like, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not really worried. If they're not worried, I'm not worried. But because your therapist isn't really on the same page and they confronted you, I really want you to have someone you can talk to about this. So maybe try again, or maybe find another therapist or tell a close friend about it, because I really want you to have a place where you can talk about this so that we can better understand where that comes from, if there's a certain trigger or what's coming up for you, and just having someone who can assess um, and make sure that you're still safe and that there isn't any risk. Because it's something that we have to constantly be aware of, right? Because we know situations can cause us to act in irrational and harmful ways. We want to make sure that we're okay. Does that make sense? I hope so. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hi, Katie, why do so many people want to find reasons for why you are the way that you are instead of just accepting you as you are? I was raped as a teenager and I hate telling people this because they automatically think that that's the reason that I am the way I am when it's not. I was always introverted and closed off and socially anxious long before I was raped, but they don't believe me. It's like once I say the word rape, a light bulb appears over their head like they solved a puzzle. The rape never changed my personality. I just developed a few trauma symptoms like having trust issues and hypervigilance. I'm still the same person I was before. I just, just a little more anxious. How would you go about this? Should I just let them believe what they want to believe and stop trying to correct them? I'm so tired of having to give the same speech over and over again. <sighs> um, it's up to you because the thing that the most important component of this whole question is the fact that we cannot change other people's perceptions of us and the way that other people think. We can't make people not make these assumptions and say that, oh, this must have changed us. And sure, traumas do change us. Like you said, you have, you know, you're a little bit more anxious and hypervigilant, but you're still you. It doesn't like alter our personality completely. For some people it does, but for not all of us. And it's not up to you to prove to them that it didn't. What the only things that you can actually control is how you talk about it and what you say. And that could mean that we just don't tell people about it anymore because we just don't want people to go. We don't want to talk about it. That's not important, right? We might not tell people, but that's up to you. Again, I'm just giving options. So maybe we don't talk about it. Or we, when people say, oh, that makes so much sense. Say, I was always this way anyways. I don't actually have any big changes in my personality from it. And that's all we say. You know, you can have a shortened version of something. But again, it's not up to you to educate them. It's not up to you to change their mind. And if they don't want their mind to be changed or they don't want to be educated, they're not going to. And that kind of sucks. And so I guess my homework for you would be to consider what's best for you. Do you feel like people need to know? Therefore, we should come up with a better way to communicate it. Could we role play it out a little bit and see if there's a, a different way we could talk about it that might render a better result for us? Let's be curious about that. Or do we feel like we just don't want people to know about it because it leads us down a path that we just don't want to get on and we're tired of it. And so we're just going to tell people in our lives that we don't want to talk about it anymore. How could we say that? Could we say, you know, I feel like I'm always having these same conversations about this. So I just, I really don't want to talk about the rape anymore. I've processed it in therapy. I'm okay. And that's all you really need to know right? Is that something we say? Maybe that's what we prepare to say. But consider what's best for you. We cannot control other people. We can't make them stop asking inappropriate questions or assuming things that aren't true. We can only control what we communicate and what we do. So let's think about that and consider what's best for you. And then let's find ways to implement it. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and says, as an add-on, how do you like being touched by men again? Because for context, I was raped and then hit by my dad. 
therapy, therapy, therapy. I cannot encourage you enough talking about what happened to you and processing it through. Processing means a lot of things, you guys. It could mean talk therapy where we talk it out until there's no emotional charge, meaning it's not triggering to us. That could be one way we go about it. Could also be through somatic experiencing, meaning incorporating body movements into our healing process. Could be through schema or parts work where we figure out the different components of ourselves and how this trauma or upset, you know, affected each component of that and how do we work to heal through that. We could do some EMDR, which is where we like follow a finger, a light, or be tapped um, from left to right. So it's like bilateral stimulation in our brain, allowing our brain another opportunity to process what took place. There can be a lot of different ways we can process it through, but that is going to be the only way for you to be able to overcome what happened to you and to be able to allow touch from men in a way that feels loving and healing instead of harmful and abusive. And it takes time and you're going to need to have a partner who's okay with you stopping and starting things and wanting touch and not wanting touch. And I cannot encourage you enough to get into the Courage to Heal workbook. It's an amazing book. And the last couple of chapters really touch on like having a healthy sex life after something took place that was like being raped or sexual abuse as a child. And it can be really, really healing. So I encourage you to check that out. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie, happy new year. Happy new year to you. Says I don't know how to tell my new therapist about everything that I'm struggling with because it seems so overwhelming and I don't know where to start. We did the initial appointment. And although I didn't have a problem opening up, I feel like I barely told her anything because there's just so much. I start regular weekly sessions mid-January. And I don't know how to prioritize what to work on first or how to give her the context of all of my issues, eating disorder, depression, trauma, attachment, grief, anxiety. I wrote it all down, but I didn't have the courage to give it to her at the end of that first session as I felt too exposed and embarrassed that there is so much I have to work on. Do you have any tips for getting past this shame and or how to get sessions started off well so that I don't waste time? How can I communicate clearly all that I'm struggling with without exhausting myself or trying too much at once? Thank you so much for this podcast and your videos. They're so valuable and have gotten me through many difficult days. Oh, I'm so glad. Now, it's like you read my mind because my initial knee-jerk reaction was like, write it all down and give it to her if you can. But I understand the feeling of this is too much, I'm too much, all that shame and all those, the false beliefs you have about yourself and your mental health struggles. Because if, as from a therapist's perspective, I don't know if this helps, but I just have to say it. From a therapist's perspective, this is all connected because what I would see when you said eating disorder, depression, trauma, attachment, grief, and anxiety, you know what I see? I see grief and trauma as potential root issues. And off of that comes attachment. That's our first sprout. Then attachment leads to anxiety so quickly and depression's its cousin and then eating disorders. Boom because we don't know how to cope with all that's happening. And so it seems like a lot. And I know you're thinking, oh my God, there's so much to work on. Yes and no. In therapy, there's always a lot of what I would call like distraction symptoms. We always have those. Those are can be things like I have an eating disorder and it's raging and I'm, I'm binging and purging all day. Or I, you know, I'm dealing with anxiety and I have these panic attacks or I'm so depressed, I can't get out of bed. And those things are important, right? I know they're like distractions, but they're important because those are the things that brought us in. Those are the things that are bothering us each and every day, but they're actually just symptoms of something greater, like the trauma and the attachment. That's where I would start because that's actually where we need to work. However, sometimes I, and also the grief, sorry, the grief and trauma I kind of put together because sometimes when we have a trauma, we have like a complicated grief that's usually related to it. But 
when it comes to like anxiety, depression, eating disorders, those symptoms, those distraction symptoms, those are important to get some like behavioral techniques and ways to better manage while we work on the root issue. And it can take us a little while to kind of get into the root, but it's just, I know it feels like it's a lot, but it's, it's not, it's, it's just, it's your story and it's how the struggles in your life have manifested themselves over these years. And we see stuff like this as therapists all the time. So I only say that to just hopefully validate and let you know that you're not alone and this isn't too much and it's not going to be overwhelming to your therapist. What's probably true is that it's overwhelming to you and that's why you're seeking out help. And so I would encourage you to communicate in your next session, if you're able, kind of what you told me. Say, I feel like I have so much to work on. I'm overwhelmed. And then I'm kind of ashamed that I even have that much to work on. So I don't even know where to start. You can rewind this back. You could verbatim say it how I said it. Or you could just say to your therapist, I have so much shit going on. I don't even know where to start. And I feel overwhelmed and embarrassed about it. You could say that too. There's a lot of different ways to say it, but getting that out can help because then at least your therapist knows, okay, maybe the anxiety that they talked about in the first session is just one of many things that they're struggling with. So I need to ask more questions to try to uncover what those other things are, because that's also very normal and a completely reasonable and common part of our job. So that's something that we can do too. But we have to kind of try to communicate at least something, even if it's, I'm having a hard time telling you about all that's happening. That's still helpful. That's still valuable information. And that can help you feel better more quickly and allow your therapist to ask the questions that then hopefully prompt you in a way that feels good to open up about the different things going on. We we don't have to dump it all at once. I personally am a verbal diarrhea person in therapy. So I just like say it all. But it's also okay to just let them know there's a lot. I don't know where to start and kind of let them guide it. Okay. And that's a huge part of our job too. Even if you did dump it all, we would still be putting it together a treatment plan. Like I talked about, like how I would kind of visualize this like tree of symptoms and what the roots are. Um, that would still help guide me in the treatment. And I would talk with you about what I thought and why I was, you know, we're doing the way things were doing. And I would still kind of lead you. I'm not going to force you to go the way that I want, but I'm going to lead you based on what I know. And then you can either, you know, agree, disagree, and we can work together to work you towards your goals. Okay. I hope that helps. I hope they give you some language to communicate that. Um, so you don't feel so overwhelmed because you're not alone. It's very, very common. Okay. Question number nine says, happy 2022, Katie, Sean, and Roxy. Happy 2022 to you. 2022. So weird to say it that way. Um, I've been relapsing back into my eating disorder over Christmas, more purging, restricting, etc. How can I break back out of the cycle before I get back in deep again? I get these questions a lot from my patients over the years. And the truth is, let's go back to what worked before. What helped you? What are the tools? What are the resources? Are they impulse logs? Is it therapy? Is it a seeing a dietitian? Do we need to get back into treatment? All of those things are important to consider. What coping skills worked? What other things do we do to help us? Do we have a friend who's supportive? Let's consider how we got out in the first place because all of that work that you put in to get you where you were is still there. Don't let your eating sort of lie to you and tell you, oh, because I've relapsed and just sliding back. It's like I never, it's like I'm completely back in it. Uh, 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 no, no. All the work you did still stands. We're just having a tough time. We've just slipped up. It's like we tripped on the curb and we've fallen, but we can stand right back up and get back on and going. Doesn't mean we got to like roll, like somersault our way back home. Mm -mm. We're still moving. It's okay. We just tripped. Okay. 
So what helped? What helped us get up before? Can we do some of those things? And the number one thing that I always tell my patients to do is stop shit talking yourself. Everybody slips and falls down. We don't have to just lie there. It's okay. You slipped and fell. Dust yourself off. Get back up. We relapsed. Christmas is triggering. Fucking holidays are so stressful. It's such a hard time for my eating disorder patients. So you're no different. Okay. You had a stressful time. That's okay. We had a tough go. We relapsed a little bit. Let's get the fuck back up. Don't let the eating disorder tell you, oh, you're such a loser. You did this again. It's never going to get better. See, we can only be good at one thing. Tell it to shut up. It's such a liar. And eating disorder voices really piss me off because all they do is shit talk us, put us down and tell us we're not good enough. That's not helpful. I'm here to tell you that you can and will get better. We just need a little extra support. And that's why I'm like, what helped? last time. Maybe we need another therapist to come in and pull, help, you know, lend a hand, help pull us back up, give us some more tools and resources. Maybe, you know, we need them to just help get us on our feet for a second and then we're okay running again. I don't know. But using those tools that worked before, noticing your self-talk, do not allow that eating sort of voice to spend too much time in your head. Ooh, and if you can pick up a copy of Eating in the Light of the Moon, maybe at your local library, somebody just tagged me in something on Instagram I'd never be able to find it right now because it was like over a day ago. So, but there's an app that allows you to access digital copies of books from your library. Amazing. Um, But Eating in the Light of the Moon is in my Amazon shop as well. So you can just go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton and you can find it there. It's a beautiful book. It's really, really helpful and healing, but get yourself some support. Notice those thoughts um, and Every moment of the day that you don't engage in eating disorder behavior is a win. And I encourage you to at least twice a day, allow yourself to celebrate those small wins. Let's say you had an urge to go purge and you didn't. Now we're a little anxious and the thoughts are kind of getting louder that we know that it's happened before, but I want you to celebrate. Even if it's just that little voice in your head, maybe it's just imagine me being like, yeah or fuck yeah, or whatever you want to say to get excited. Look at me kicking ass, taking names. I want you to kind of cheerlead yourself a little bit, or, you know, maybe play back this answer when you need a little oomph to get you going because relapses are common. They're going to happen. It's okay. Not all is lost. Don't let that Eden sort of voice tell you that's true because that is not true. Don't let it hang out in your head. Argue back with the facts. Eden disorders never have facts. And Use the tools that used to work for you. Keep it simple. We don't have to get all complicated. You got out before and you'll get out again. Okay. Now, final question. Question number 10 says, Dear Katie, I have a question about rational and irrational fear. In summer, I started my first year at uni. And while I was very aware of the potentially unhealthy stress I'd get into, unfortunately, I think nowadays that's almost a given when you start studying. It doesn't make stress, anxiety, and worry any easier to deal with. It's true. Even though you know, it doesn't make it better. I try rationalizing with myself and putting things into perspective that even if I don't pass my exams, I still have so many possibilities and privileges through where I live that I could manage somehow. But I still find myself, um, I still find it difficult to deal with the fear of not passing my exams. Often with fear, I can tell myself that the actual event I'm scared of happening is rather unlikely. How do I calm myself down when the possibility of my fear coming true actually isn't that small? Thank you for caring so much for this community. Of course. Thank you for being part of it. Now, rational and irrational fear, it's interesting because fear is such a, our brain is wired to seek it out and hear me out because our brain is wired to find threats, threats to our emotional or physical safety and fear 
hangs right out there. And so when we have something that we think could really be a threat to us, right? Because you're like, this, it's a possibility. It's pretty, oh, our brain wants to glom onto it and focus on it so much so, so that we, it's, it's, we're really wired to like protect ourselves. And I get it. So you're like, thanks brain. Good job. Thanks for noticing this potential threat. I've taken note of it. And here's how we move on. Number one, we distract like a motherfucker. I don't want you letting these worry thoughts fill your head and continue. In order to stop them, we're gonna have to do some body shakes. We're gonna have to, like I said, distract. So distracts, you can get into my 25 coping skills video. Just get on YouTube, 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, it'll pop up. Um, Check out some of those. Try some of them out. Do different things to get your brain away. And so there's two types of coping skills in that video. And I'm talking about the distraction-based ones. Now, so we can get those worry thoughts from swirling. We can slow them down at least, if not stop them. Then I want you to get into the process-based ones because this fear is coming from somewhere and it's it's glomming on and controlling our life for some reason. And I'm curious why it has so much power. And so in those process-based ones like impulse logs, where your impulse is actually to worry to the point where you can barely get shit done, right? Or run away or hide or maybe not sleep or who knows, right? What's the impulse? The impulse is to be anxious and overwhelmed. We had to dig in more. That's just one of those symptoms. Remember earlier I was talking about like, the, oh, the distraction symptoms. What's really going on? Be curious about that. Because I feel like once we uncover where this irrational fear is coming from, and I know you're saying, oh, it's partially rational. Sure, most of our fears have some root in reality, but the it's the overreaction. It's the fact that you could be like, oh, it would suck if I didn't pass my exams. Yeah, it's kind of scary, but I have to keep, pl-. you know, we just, then we let it go. That's a, a correct amount or a, what would we call it? Like a, a basic normal reaction, a warranted, that's the word I'm looking for, a warranted level of emotional reaction based on what's happening. Whereas you're having this overreaction. And I know we use the term overreaction in kind of like a judgmental way. I don't mean it that way. I mean it as it's greater. Our reaction is greater than the actual situation warrants. And therefore that overreaction tells us something. It's actually really helpful information in therapy because we're like, hmm, I was clearly triggered here. Hmm, I had this huge reaction. Why? And that's what I want you to journal about. Is like, do we have this intense fear of failure because maybe people in our lives always told us we weren't going to be good enough? Or have I always just been overly anxious and I, I worry a lot about things and maybe I should see a therapist for my anxiety or maybe I should try medication for my anxiety. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of those tools Katie mentioned, like body shakes and maybe doing some yoga or something or breathing exercises or journaling or, you know, hmm. Or is it, you know, that I like to sabotage because deep down, maybe I don't believe that I'm ever going to do anything properly or be good because my parents always told me I was a piece of shit and other people in my life always told me that I'm making up things, but those are ones that I hear all the time. And so really be curious about this fear and where it's coming from, because sure, the root or the little basic small reaction is very rational. All of that other is completely irrational. And I know you're saying that the fear of coming true isn't actually that small. That's not what I'm talking about. It's your reaction to this potential fear, like, or not fear, but this potential upset, right? We can be scared of not passing our classes, but how, how helpful is it for you to continue feeling that way? in this intense of a fashion. It's not helpful at all. So we have to figure out why we're having such a reaction because 
if we look out into the world, I'm sure other people are taking the same amount of classes, doing the same things and aren't having that reaction. So why are we having it, right? We just have to be curious, be a detective about yourself, learn about yourself. Where is this coming from? And why is it so scary? And why am I letting it derail me when, you know, I don't actually know if I should be derailed. Like it doesn't, if, you know, that does kind of make sense. And maybe something that I said resonated with you, but let's be curious about it, dig into it. And I find that once we kind of know where it's coming from, then we're better able to snuff it, better able to process through using those other coping skills. And sure, we might still need some of those distraction-based ones, but we'll get there and it will. we will calm down. It will be okay. And we'll be able to slow those thoughts uh, that seem like they're like swirling at a hundred miles an hour. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Happy New Year. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. And I will see you later. Bye. Ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.